On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. Hello, everybody. Glad to have you here for a Second Shot Sit-Down as we really take a second look at time management. I, I think this discussion is going to flip the script on, on how you look at time, how you manage your own time, how you even feel about the word time. Uh, today we have a really interesting guest. He is Oliver Berkman. He is the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which was really, that was the first one that made me think, oh, we've, we've got to have him on. And then more recently, he just came out with 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals which is us. So Oliver, considering you know so much about time and, and how it is well spent, I'm truly honored that you're spending the time with us and I'm, I'm glad to see you. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for, for the invitation. <clears throat> I would love to hear a little bit of backstory on how you came to be interested in, in pursuing uh, a career that involved these specific topics. Yeah, well, I mean, possibly most of this is between me and my therapist, but I think that um, <laughs> I think that pretty much everyone who writes books that are in this broadly kind of self-help personal development genre, whether they admit it or not, are writing about their own struggles uh, and, and what they've sort of had to grapple with themselves. I spent many years writing a weekly column for the Guardian newspaper in the UK about uh, psychology, self-help, happiness, all the rest of it. And one of the things I got to do was to test out like a huge number of supposedly clever tricks and techniques for managing my time. This book is not a compendium of what I learned. It's really a com what, what, about what happened and what I understood uh. when all of those techniques failed. And when uh, you know I got to the point of realizing that no amount of clever uh, efficiency systems were ever going to deliver this feeling of being completely in control of my time, totally able to take on anything that life might throw at me. Because, you know, I think we just, we just live in a world where there is too much systematically. Mm -hmm. It's just a math mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. And so really that's where this came from, trying to find my own my own sane way through through the demands that are placed on, on all of us in and, one way or another. Right, and so your demands specifically were as a writer and as a journalist. Sure, right, and that's a very deadline-driven world, <laughs> exactly. so I was very much used to sort of being given less than a day to appear like I knew what I was talking about on a million different uh, topics, and and that's that's one way you really need to manage the, the sort of stress and anxiety of things really sort of coming at you very very fast and I think yeah if you if you tell yourself the way you're going to do that is by becoming this kind of superhuman person that is never going to fail at anything or is always going to be completely on top of any new thing that could come in right in the moment it's, it's a recipe for extra stress right because uh -huh. that's just not how it's just not how the world works Oliver are you in my head 
Are you? Did you talk to my therapist? Is this how? Is this, wait? Is this an intervention? <laughs> Hold on. Did I book this interview as an intervention? Did you deal with with? I mean, oh my gosh! Every journalist I know, it's like stress, anxiety, overwhelm. But also, they kind of like it, and they kind of feed off of it, and they kind of. Um, you know, enjoy that idea of being busy and stressed and can't fit enough things in, and it's almost like you don't have to deal with the other problems because you're so busy. Does that relate to your prior self? I'm assuming you're not like that now after doing the book. I, I'm, I'm better, but I wouldn't say I'm perfect. And and yeah, by the way, we, me and your friends, we've been getting together and trying and talking about your problems <laughs> and trying to figure out a figure out a solution. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I think that the <laughs> I've certainly had this feeling all through that time that I was working on on um, fast, more, you know, faster breaking kind of things than I than I'm focused on now, I guess, that I was almost in, in the position of having everything in working order, like the next project or the next magazine piece or the next article, that would be the one where I really felt like I knew what I was doing. But for now, I just had to get this one out of the way. And I think that's a feeling, I don't think this is journalism specific. I think this no, is a no. feeling that all sorts of people have in their lives that like, they're not, things aren't quite in proper working order yet and they and they will be soon. And I think part of what I'm trying to do in this book is, is say that that's sort of based on a false premise, which is that any of us could ever feel totally in control, totally superhuman and infinitely capable when it comes to time. And it's actually really powerful to to drop that struggle and get stuck into, you know, doing a few things that count. I'm excited to learn bed. more about that. Do you think there's a sense that we all think that we're struggling, but everybody else isn't? Like that the other moms at drop-off, they surely had the assignments and they had the school uniform right and I'm delayed and I didn't order the soccer cleats and now they're late. You know, I guess I'm, I'm always thinking everybody else has it together and it's me that doesn't, but is it, is it everybody? Right. There's this very, totally. There's this, I think it is everybody, even though some of them may not realize it. Mm. I think that there's this famous, there's this famous uh, saying, you know, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Um, you sit there or you stand there at the school gate or whatever thinking, I can only hear one internal monologue of self-criticism and self-doubt here, and it's mine. And then it's very easy to assume that that's because nobody else has one. But no, it's because you're only inside your own head. Mm. Um, and you don't realize that you know, everyone else is just pretty practiced at putting on a confident exterior, as are you, by the way, right? It's not just, it, so sure. you're actually part of, part of the same situation. And I think that you know, that's just really, there's just a really nice, sense of us all being in the same boat when it comes to this stuff. It's kind of empowering and liberating to realize that some of this kind of sense of not quite knowing what's going on and like you're winging it. It's just called being human. It isn't like some special failing of yours that you that you need to address before you can be a fully functioning member of adult society. Well, that's a relief. I posted something on Instagram the other day that said, uh, don't forget to have your stuff together for strangers on the internet today. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> here we are, everybody. I want to talk about um, the significance of, of 4,000 weeks as, as part of your title. What does 4,000 weeks mean to us as humans? Well, 4,000 weeks is very roughly the number of weeks you're going to get if you have a sort of approximately average lifespan of almost 80 years in the West. I totally did round it to get a sort of nice number in the title. And obviously, many people get fewer, some people get many more. 
But even the most sort of record-breaking people in history who've lived, who lived to like 120 or whatever, they only get kind of 6,000 and something weeks. I think what really matters here is just there's something about expressing this in weeks that um, is a bit of a useful kind of a shock. It's like, oh, hang on. If I was thinking of my life in weeks, surely that ought to be like hundreds of thousands or something because a week is so short. And, um, and it isn't. We are finite and there isn't much time. Now, I don't think that that is a reason to sort of go through life in a panic. I think, as we can discuss, if you like, it's sort of a cause for relief in a strange way. But it is a useful thing to begin with, like to realize that we, we go through life as if we had all the time in the world and, and nothing could be, could be further from the truth. Really. I thought surely 4,000 weeks was just like, yeah, not your whole <laughs> life. You're right. You do. You think it's you think it it's just so much and, and, and life is so short. So then you have this kind of blueprint for less stressful living. I almost feel like I can I can sense it in your voice or your your cadence that perhaps you're living this out. I, I don't know if that's true, but what's the blueprint? Because I want some of that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm a lot better than I was. Um, and actually, the experience of writing this book was a sort of an exercise in stepping into that to that uh, way of living, although I'm not sure my wife would agree that I never get stressed or complain <laughs> about being overwhelmed or anything like that. Um, I think it really is a perspective shift. You know, there are a bunch of techniques and methods in the book, um, but, but it really at its core, it, it's just this recognition that, that a lot of the standards that we hold ourselves to are, are not a question of like making big bold demands of ourselves it, it, they are just literally impossible right I mean if you think that you're going to give a hundred percent of your energy and time to really excelling in the workplace and you're going to give a hundred percent of your energy and time to being the greatest parent ever like there's just a math problem there it isn't about lack of self-discipline or not being, uh, you know, not having the right techniques. And I think that when you make that, when you, when you see that a little bit and you let it sort of seep into your, into your, through your skin or whatever, it, it's not that you then start saying, well, I'm just going to have a low achieving life where I don't really try to do anything uh, meaningful or impressive. Not at all. It's about saying now I am freed up to really focus on a handful of things that count, you know, to decide that this aspect of my job and this aspect of my family life, these matter really a lot to me and I'm going to really go all in on them. But you know what? Maybe I'm not going to be the person who has the most stylish home interior in the neighborhood. Maybe I'm never going to be a great cook. Maybe I'm going to do the exercise that I need to do to stay fit, but I'm not going to be running that 10K this year. And to make those decisions, because we're always making those decisions anyway, right? Mm -hmm. It's a question of whether you're making them consciously or not. Every time you use an hour for something, you're not using it for a million other things. So it's really just a question of becoming conscious of how things already are so that you don't spend your days like beating yourself up for for not being able to make two plus two add up to five, really, mm -hmm. which is all it is. Right. So Oliver, say, so he, he's saying you, the, the hour is going to pass anyway. What are you what are you using on? So, so do you, are you, I want to hear your system or are you, do you have a system? Is it like I do this, 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 or I just let my day flow 
what what is it so that we can define those goals and figure out okay what are the things is it going to be the 10k or is it going to be the interior this year and how many things do we pick that was a hundred questions for you oliver all in one <laughs> i'll do my best um i think that um Firstly, I think that when it comes to picking the things to focus on, that really does have to be intuitive. There's a great uh, question that I quote in the book from a from a therapist called James Hollis, who is, I think, incredibly wise, who says that you should ask about some life choice you're confronting. Not You shouldn't ask what would make me happier because we're terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy. That's really been very well established in the research. But instead to ask this slightly strange question, will this choice enlarge me or diminish me? And it sounds really odd at first, but if you sort of think about that for a while, there are often choices that we make in life where they're not gonna necessarily be comfortable right off the bat, but you know that they're what you need to grow as a person. And then there are other choices, often involving you know, hedonism or social media or all sorts of things where they are gonna be totally um, enjoyable the moment you do them, but you also kind of know that they're the opposite of, of growth. So I think that's a really useful question. And then, you know, if you want another one, just on the level of the of every day, something I found really useful is to to plan out the day for sure. So to definitely sort of use some kind of time blocking method where you're saying between these hours of the day, I'm going to be doing this and between these hours, I'm going to be doing that. But then and this is key, I think, to hold that really loosely, to be completely prepared to change that plan when circumstances change or when things take longer than you expected. Not to take it as a failure if the day doesn't unfold according to the little thing you did in your fancy notebook with your fancy pens. Maybe I'm giving too much information about my own. You're giving me way too much credit to think that I would have the fancy pen. But um, but yeah, so so you're so you do do time blocking. I was curious about that. So many it seems like either every successful person is saying I'm time blocking, I'm time blocking and then people think, well, what do you t- how do you time block when you have, you know, a child or an animal or a spouse or you know, just all these different ever flowing things. So it sounds like time block but with <laughs> loose blocks. No, absolutely. And it's, you know, uh, we have a 4-year-old who hopefully isn't going to burst in. Oh my gosh, in us too. The- or behind me. <laughs> I would love that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's how to get these things into viral hits, isn't it? Um, yeah. But, um, uh, and so, yeah, it's totally ridiculous to think that I'm going to be able to know at eight o'clock in the morning uh, exactly what activities are going to be happening between like the hours of six and 7.30 in the evening. But you can have a plan. You can, you can have a plan that you hold very loosely. There's a great line from... Uh, the meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein, who I, Goldstein, who I quote in the book, which is that a plan is just a thought, right? He says we forget what we forget is that a plan is just a thought. We sort of make these plans, and then we're like, okay, now the day has got to unfold according to my plans, otherwise everything has gone wrong. But really, a plan is just you here in the present moment saying, you know, here's one ideal way in which the day could unfold, and it won't unfold ideally, but it's good to have. Uh, a sense of it in the same way that it's good to have a, a, a route map in your mind for a, for a drive you're, somewhere you're going in a car. So I think that's really useful to, to be quite disciplined about planning the day, but then to be really forgiving of yourself and other people when it comes to how exactly much those, those plans align with, 
with reality. So you have these five questions that, that are supposed to kind of help us simplify and attain a less stressful life. Um, one of them being, and this one really struck me, and so you guys just listen to this, hear, hear me out on the question, then we'll discuss it. Are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? So this is a struggle because people who are want, you know, they want to be high achievers and they want to accomplish a lot, and, and I, I think there's a sense that, well, in order to do that, you have to hold yourself to the highest standard. We were taught, you know, shoot for the, what is it? Shoot for the stars or he'll hit the moon or vice versa. Um, how do you still become a high achiever, but also not hold yourself to impossible standards? Well, I think it's a really good question and a really, I mean, your question, not, I'm not saying. I mean, yours is good too, Oliver. Um, That's why yeah. I brought it up. <laughs> um, I think it's, I think it's, a really important distinction and I think it's an, a distinction you know I, I'm uh, I'm always trying to bring the focus to that um, really trying to accomplish the most impressive things that you can accomplish the most meaningful things you can accomplish this is great this is fantastic this is this is what a meaningful life is is made of but there is a total difference between that and the impossible, and usually the impossible that we're holding ourselves to is not about, well, you know, I want to build a new generation of uh, space-going rocket or something, right? It's usually something like I'm going to be completely on top of my emails, mm -hmm. and I'm also going to be the most kind of I'm going to be the the, the parent at the at school who is most on top of absolutely everything, and I'm going to be these kind of things that are just they're just about. Um, processing an infinite number of tasks and it is infinite right if you get really good at processing your email you just get more email i've experienced this myself directly <laughs> so it's 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 literally limitless and that kind of you know telling yourself that you've got to get to the end of an endless uh thing is is pretty obviously uh you know not not going to happen and i actually think it's when you can let go of those things i've certainly found it in my own experience it's when you can let go of those kinds of uh ideas of perfect efficiency and being totally together on everything that's when you're freed up with time and energy mm. and attention to really get started on some things you care about so these are not it's not like you need to aim for the impossible in order to do something pretty impressive and good it's that when you give up the impossible, you're kind of liberated to do the best things that, that you're sort of on the planet to do, I think. So it seems you were on the planet to share your writing and your research with us. How did you go about writing? Like, how do you, what, what's your writing process? And, and then I'm going to get back on track with this stuff, but I'm just so curious how, um, because that's a high achievement thing. I mean, writing a book is something so many people try to do and just, it's, <laughs> It's hard to get mm -hmm. to the end of it and get it all together. The concepts are large. Um, so how'd you do that? Did, what was your process like? Well, certainly, yeah, it's hard and it wasn't easy for me. Um, and also, uh, you know, one aspect of this that I think is important for anyone who does sort of creative type things, my process is changing constantly. Mm. Like the idea that you're going to find the perfect one and it's going to be like plug and play and then you just implement it for the rest of your career. Ooh, I think Oliver, is... I wanted you to give us your plug and play. <laughs> well, I'll do, as, I'll do as well as I can. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I feel like so it's so important to, to let yourself be doing something different 
in three weeks time than you're doing now when it comes to processes like this. That said, the thing that was really helpful for me, which is an embodiment also of the, of the ideas in the book about limitation and embracing your sort of built-in limitations was to really focus on ring fencing just like three hours at the beginning of the day to really focus on writing the book to make it a kind of a, a kind of a, a middle-sized priority in my life, not to turn it into this hugely intimidating thing where I was going to spend 12 hours a day dedicating every moment to it, but, but something where I was going to say, okay, for these hours, I'm going to try really hard to make sure there are no interruptions. I'm going to be quite sort of selfish in focusing on this, this task. But I'm also, even if I'm on a roll at the end of those three hours, going to try very hard to get up and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that over the weeks, even just after a few days, that approach is is more productive than um, you know working for in a huge binge. Because if you work in binges, it, it, it's all so stressful and tiring that you, on some subconscious level, you start to associate the work with like with something really unpleasant and exhausting that you don't want to do. And it's great if you're doing so little of it that you're actually quite excited to come back to it uh, day after day. It's like, oh, I get to do it for three hours. And the result is just that you make quicker progress. So even if it feels a little bit self-indulgent and it does even to me right to think about the idea that the really important thing in your work you might sort of be done with by half past 11 or something um even if it feels indulgent it clearly isn't because it's actually the way to get more words written and i think it applies to things beyond beyond writing as well because i'm going to assume that if you're setting a, a three-hour time you're not then scrolling on your phone or like uh, you know let me take the dog for a walk or all these other things that filter in and drag out the work day right right and it and it's a lot easier to do that because you're not telling yourself like, now I am a monk and for the next year I don't get to, to go on social media or you know, hang out with my friends. You're saying for three hours, that's the way it's gonna be. And then after that, you know, all bets are off. So it's actually, it, it's again, it's an example of just working with the fact that you are a slightly distractible person or that you do like to do other things in your life besides, besides this one thing. Um, and kind of harnessing that for, for a productive purpose instead of um, instead of being constantly in like at war with with your personality which is a is a fool's errand really yeah it is one of the other questions that you ask here and I'll read it to you guys kind of slowly so you can take this in in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are not the person you think you ought to be why why is that an important question for us to ask ourselves I think it's important because I think so many people till quite late on in their adult lives find themselves pursuing ways of being and ways of living and careers that either they think on some level is what their parents wanted them to do or that society needs them to do that that in order to sort of measure up to some audience of judges somewhere in the back of their minds they have to choose these things. And there's a lovely quote that I use in the book from Stephen Cope, who's a spiritual author and a yoga teacher, who says that um, at some point uh, in our adult lives, it finally dawns on us that like nobody really cares what you're doing with your life. <laughs> I mean, this can be misinterpreted, but I think what he means is it's not that, you know, hopefully you have some family members and friends who care that you're doing something that you find fulfilling, but the idea that you, you know, have to be following a, a career in, I don't know, as a lawyer when you really feel that what you 
always wanted to do was was uh, a career in um I don't know as a as a wine expert or I'm just throwing out ideas sure. here it's completely random but the point is you're not going to offend usually and by and large you're not going to sort of deeply disappoint or offend anyone by doing the thing that um you sort of feel like you you always wanted to do and if you're waiting if you're waiting till you feel like you're ready finally to sort of take that plunge there's lots of reasons why you can sort of expect to be waiting uh, forever because you know you're probably not going to get to the point of silencing all these inner critics saying oh you should do this you should do that at some point you maybe have to just say okay thanks for your input inner critic but um but i'm going to do this now could you start practicing that out on a smaller level for example if you're thinking yeah, I'm the lawyer that wants to be the winemaker. Could you start that on a smaller level with like, I, I don't know, just trying it out with yourself on activities or invites or, you know, the little things that you just do in life because you're asked to do them and you're not really certain if you enjoy them or not um, as a means to get better at, at, at knowing what you actually want? I think that's sometimes a hard thing for people to discern. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great point, the fact that it can be done in a little way. I mean, in fact, all through this book I'm at pains to say I don't think this is a question of um, unless you read this book and immediately walk out of your existing life and you know become a guru on a Himalayan mountaintop or something then it doesn't count I think this is all to do with sort of slightly eroding this and undermining this this way of thinking about time that we've come to uh, uh, internalize and letting out this other one, but it can be in very small increments, right? So firstly, it can be in little ways in your social life or, or in your, your life at home, your life outside of work. Secondly, you know, if there are professional passions that people are waiting to start on, you can start on them without just completely walking out of your existing life. I think it was the, the careers expert, Barbara Scher, who made this point that, you know, if you want to be a screenwriter, and you're not a screenwriter, you're something else, you've got two choices. You can wait until this alleged moment that you're going to leave behind um, what you're doing now to become a screenwriter, or you can spend 20 minutes tomorrow morning working on a screenplay. Then you are a screenwriter, admittedly not a commercially successful one at that point, but like you're already doing it then. Um, and it doesn't take much at all to be already already doing it. And then you, know, then you can go into work and do, what, do the other thing that you do. Oliver, another question that struck me that you ask in the book, and I want people to think about, is how would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? Huh. So it's tough. You got to earn a living, right? Or you got to take care of the family, right? That that's reaching fruition. But why is this an important one for us to think about? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us can sort of live meaningfully with a, and never see anything we do uh, reach fruition. But what I mean is all sorts of uh, uh, activities that we um, th that we could consider meaningful to do with everything from parenting to sort of building organizations, businesses, through to various kinds of, I don't know, volunteering work, environmental activism, all sorts of things. You don't want to be in the position of saying this only counts if I'm going to be there at the moment that it all pays off. Mm. Uh, you know, um, you're, that, that's, you don't want to sort of limit yourself in that way. You want to feel that like maybe this 
creative work I'm doing won't be fully appreciated for centuries. Who knows? Maybe the maybe the organization that I'm helping to support here to transform my community, maybe that transformation is not going to be really evident uh, for a very, very, very long time. But you don't want to say that that makes it meaningless because that sort of sets the bar uh, far too high, I think. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in Northern England in this city called York, which has a very old cathedral that took hundreds of years to build. And um, I always think of the stonemasons working on that at the beginning. Like, there was no chance they were going to be there at the opening ceremony. But that doesn't mean that the work they were doing wouldn't have been something that they found that they found meaningful, I think. Oh, that's a that's a beautiful just sort of imagery for us to wrap up that section with. And I'm going to let you go here in a minute because you are being so generous with your time. But I wanted to ask about this, this idea of happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. <laughs> I have some, some loved ones in my life who are just, yeah, like enough, enough with the positive thinking. What, what is like, can you give just sort of, uh, you know, a little bit of advice for, for those people who hear like personal development, positive thinking, eh, they don't want to hear it. But then again, they do want to kind of feel better. Yeah, right. I mean, I, again, I wrote that book just totally from the perspective <laughs> of, of someone you. who did right, did want to be happy and was really annoyed by um, uh, positive thinking culture. And and I think, um, yeah, look, if, if you are someone who goes through your whole life feeling naturally super upbeat and cheerful at every single moment of the day, then I don't want to get in the way of that. But I have not really met many people That's like nobody. that. That's <laughs> nobody. And I think that the... the the problem with trying to make yourself into that kind of person is that human brains just don't work that way, right? If you spend your days trying to fill your mind with positive thoughts and positive sense of where things are going, what actually happens, and they've like proved this in experiments, although it's kind of obvious as well, I think, is the opposite happens. You you end up sort of constantly uh, on the lookout for any negative thoughts creeping in. It's actually a very stressful way to live. And so what I was getting at there, um, in that book was really just this idea that if you can become a bit friendlier with these feelings of uncertainty, insecurity, sadness, failure, if you can be a bit more sort of okay with the fact that they're going to arise, that's actually a much more happy and peaceful way to be because you're not constantly sort of dividing up your emotions into two and saying, okay, I'm gonna deny admission to that half and only let this half in. It, it's a it's a much more sort of peaceful way to live, and in the long run, I think it's actually a, a happier way to live. Oh, okay. We're going to have to have you back to talk about that topic because I just have so many more questions. Oliver, I have so enjoyed spending a little bit of my 4,000 weeks with you. Um, I hope it was valuable for you as well. I'm only sad I didn't get to meet the four-year-old, but <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So if you guys are interested in learning more about Oliver and his books, oliverberkman.com is the website. Of course, this, these air Thursdays on CW33, and then, of course, the full, long episodes um, that hopefully will be worthwhile for listening to for you as well are out at secondshotpodcast.com, and you can find it linked up at cw33.com. If you enjoyed it, leave us a rating and review, and we will talk to you soon.